Good morning, everyone. Are you excited for camp this week? I, I hope you are. You're going to blink, and then you're going to be old like me. <laughs> and then you're going to be old like the rest of the leaders. <laughs> and then, so I'm in the in-between. But uh, not too long ago was I sitting where you were, coming for camp, um, and I experienced camps with two different perspectives, because the first four camps that I experienced, I was blind. I was dead. Didn't see it as valuable. Didn't see Jesus as worthy of anything. But the final three, God opened my eyes, and I was able to see. And that's what we are praying for you all, that God would make it very clear to you how valuable Jesus Christ is more valuable than anything else. And I want to encourage you, even if you don't know the Lord, but maybe there's a part of your heart that you even, if you're honest with yourself, acknowledge something is missing. Something, there's a hole there. There's a void. There's an emptiness that maybe you're trying to suppress that maybe you're trying to fill with other things. I want you to be very honest with yourself this week. And we're about to pray, but I want you to pray specifically. Even if you don't know God, pray with me in your mind that you would know God. That God would open your eyes to see. So pray with me. Let's ask that God would open our eyes to truth and to his son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we do pray to you this morning. We pray because we are insufficient. We need you. We need our eyes to be opened to you. As we will discuss in this lesson today, we are born dead. We need our eyes open. And I pray, Lord, for those students in this room that feel that emptiness, that know they are missing something, that you would make that all the more clear to them and that they would come to know you, that your spirit would move. Lord, I pray that you would take all of the attention off of myself or any other leader or any other person or any other thing. There is nothing of value that I have to offer them in myself. But through your word, I can offer them Christ. And I pray that they would see you as more valuable than anything else, as worthy of not only their thoughts or their affections, but their whole life. So please, Lord, move among us. We wouldn't dare try to do this without you because it would be fruitless. It would be powerless. So please, Lord, move among us. And help me to speak truth clearly and well. 
We pray this in your name. Amen. I want to define the word worthy. Somewhat, at least. It's a difficult word to kind of wrap your mind around. You understand when you read a banner that says Christ is worthy. You acknowledge that says something about Christ. You may have an idea of what that means, but sometimes it's hard to quantify. It's not enough to just say he's of great value. It's not enough. That's not exactly what's being said. Christ is worthy. That is true. But worthy means literally deserving, suitable, or fitting to draw praise. Someone who receives their due reward. Someone who is particularly notable. They have shown or demonstrated qualities that merit recognition and praise. It is often a descriptive word meant to describe the value of something or someone, often showing what their deeds inherit. What I mean by that is this. We would use this sort of phrase for a criminal who has uh, murdered someone. We would say they are worthy of death because their deeds lead them to be worthy of an end result. Their deeds were wicked and evil. They have killed someone. Therefore, their deeds result in them being worthy of death. Unlike a criminal, though, you have the opposite end of the spectrum, where someone whose deeds are good you might say they're worthy of recognition or worthy of praise. But to the infinite degree, we say Christ is worthy, not just of mere recognition, but worthy of everything you have to give, worthy of every ounce of glory, honor, and praise that you are able to give. And not just you alone, but the whole world. I wanted to make you aware of what our theme verse says. Of course, it's on the banners, but not every verse that we're going to be talking about this week are on the banners. So I want to read Revelation 5, 9 through 10. And by the way, you can turn there, Revelation 5. We're going to go through a couple of these verses first. When we come to Revelation 5, we come to a passage where there is a dilemma, a problem. There's a book that cannot be opened. Its seals cannot be broken. No one can access this. That's the problem that is set forth, and we are told who alone is worthy to break these seals. Who alone? There's only one that solves this problem. But before we read this, I want to ask you just to consider this. Think in your mind and in your heart. When I say, think of something that is worthy of your attention or your affection or your worship. 
And maybe you might try to come up with a holy answer, and, and that is good. I hope you see Christ as ultimately worthy. But in your hearts, there are things that we hold on to that we say with our actions and with our minds that they are worthy of our pursuit. Maybe it's another person. Maybe it's something more broad like friendships. Maybe it's some sort of sin that you pursue. You might not mentally say, oh, that's worthy, but by your actions, you show it to be worthy. You show it to be something that you're pursuing. I want to show you someone infinitely more valuable than those things. Revelation 5 verse 9 says this, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain. I want you to think of that for a moment. We're going to talk about this this week. That statement Maybe you're familiar with Jesus in some way where that statement doesn't strike you as odd anymore. That is an odd statement. You are worthy for you were killed. That's an odd statement. But it continues because it was by his death that something happened. For you were slain and purchased for God, with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Continuing in verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive what? Power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb. That is our theme passage of the week. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Who is the Lamb? Christ. Hence, Christ is worthy. The scriptures, which are the, in, it's the inerrant word of God, God speaks to you through this, says Christ is worthy. That means he is worthy. Your opinion of that truth, whether or not you believe that to be true, has nothing to do with it. It is irrelevant. The statement remains and always will remain true. Christ is worthy whether you bow the knee or not. The goal of this week is very clear and not by any form of manipulation emotionally or mentally, but simply that you would see Christ and you would bow the knee and agree with God that Christ is worthy. That's the simple goal of this week, but that doesn't mean it's easy because we fight against being blind. So I want to ask you, and you need to ask yourself in your heart, do you believe the statement on your shirts and on the banners? Christ is worthy. Do you believe that? Some of you may say yes. 
He is worthy. He has saved me. Praise God. Some of you might be completely indifferent. You might say, I could take it or leave it. Christ is worthy, I guess. Maybe I'll agree with that, but not really worthy of my whole life. Uh, And when it comes to the other things that I like, maybe he's not as worthy as those things. I want you to be warned about being indifferent. I want you to be warned about being neither hot nor cold. I want you to be warned that that indifference will lead to hell. Some of you may flat out say, no, he's not worthy. And you openly reject him and rebel against him because you see God as this dictator that keeps you from pleasure. You see God as holding out on you in some way. You don't see Christ as worthy. And this should not be surprising, by the way, when you hear somebody rejecting this statement, Christ is worthy. It should not be surprising because we are born as enemies of God. You are born rejecting God. You are born not seeing His worth. You are born not acknowledging Him as worthy. You are born as an enemy of God. And this is not my words. This is a product of the fall which we learn of from the Scriptures. Again, Do not go away from this week saying, Josh said anything. That won't profit you. What does the Bible say? The Bible speaks of this fall, and I would like to propose to you this. At the root of every sin from the beginning of time to the end of time, at the root of every sin is an open denial and rejection of this statement. Christ is worthy. Every sin has roots in a denial of that. Every single one. Turn to Genesis with me. To Genesis 3 specifically. You might say, well, how do you know that? And the Bible doesn't explicitly say what you just said, so should we believe it? Well, I'm going to show you. This is a pattern from the very beginning. To reject this idea that Christ is worthy or God is worthy of your praise, of your affections, of your glory, of your obedience, of your life. In Genesis 3, we are introduced to the chapter where the fall occurs. Of course, Adam and Eve were created by God. They were created good. They were created in His image with the intention to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Hayward read this passage last night. Colossians 1.16 says this, All things, that means you and I, have been created through Him, through Jesus Christ, and for Him. If you want to know the purpose for which you exist, you were created for Christ. However, the fall mars this. We know God 
created Adam and Eve good, upright. He is holy. He demanded holiness of his creation, right? God is holy. This is something that we want to establish. Uh, before we get into Genesis 3, I just want to read you 1 Samuel 2.2 2 says this, There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Isaiah 6.3 says, And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is God, the creator, holy and upright and good. Do you see that? God is altogether unique, perfect, without flaw, without blemish spotless, worthy of praise because of who he is. He creates Adam and Eve as a kindness. He doesn't need them in any way. He creates Adam and Eve and gives them one command. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Enjoy everything else. Enjoy me forever, but don't eat of that tree for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Let me address something. Some of you think that the commands of God are keeping you from pleasure. That is diametrically opposed to the Scripture. True joy, true pleasure is found in Jesus Christ. Sin robs you of that. This is why even in the command, do you see the gracious intent of God? If you eat of this, you will die. That's bad for you. Don't do it. God's commands are not meant to keep you from pleasure, but to link you to the source of all pleasure. And what happens. Genesis 3, there's a character that comes onto the scene. Genesis 3 verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from the tree of the garden? We'll pause there before we keep reading. We need to identify this serpent. This serpent wasn't just a random beast. This serpent is said to be the devil, Satan. Revelation 12.9 calls Satan the serpent of old that deceives the whole world. And before we even talk about the fall of Adam and Eve, it's important to know the fall of the serpent. Remember what I'm proposing to you is at the root of every sin is a rejection of Christ as worthy. How did the serpent get here? How did the devil get where he is in this chapter? Well, we have some passages that speak to this. And this is a two-part prophecy. There is some, this prophecy applies to Babylon, certainly in the ancient days, but it also rings true of Satan, speaking of his fall from heaven, because Satan wasn't always evil. Satan was created good. Satan was once a worshiper of God, until he wasn't. 
Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 says this, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. That's where we get the word Lucifer from. Lucifer means shining one or light bearer. You've heard that as a name for Satan before. O star of the morning, sun of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth. You who have weakened the nations, But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Notice, Satan once held to this, Christ is worthy. And then he replaced Christ is worthy with self is worthy. He replaced Christ is worthy with himself is worthy. He wanted to take the glory. He wanted to take the throne. And what happened immediately when he did that? He fell His sin was rooted in a rejection of Christ is worthy. Do you see that? He thought himself to be worthy because he rejected Christ alone as worthy. That's the root of his sin. He didn't want to bow the knee to God. And it's no no surprise that in Genesis 3 we see The one who doesn't see Christ as worthy is trying to get others to not see him as worthy. Look, as we keep reading, this is the tactic of Satan to try to get you to reject Christ as worthy. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see the lies mixed with some truth here. Do you see how he is trying to get them to believe this? God is holding out on you. God is not worthy of obeying. God is not worthy of your pursuit. God is not worthy of everything. There's something you're lacking. God's keeping it from you. This is his tactic. In verse 6, we see the result. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Satan's tactic, the original rejecter of Christ is worthy. 
Satan didn't believe it. He didn't hold to it. He rejected it and fell. He's thrown to the earth, and his immediate target are the creation. He wants them to die with him. He wants them to reject Christ as worthy. He wants them to believe God does not have their best interest in mind, and they believe him, and they fall. And you might say, well, what in the world does this have to do with us? They fell. What does that mean for me? Well, the Bible speaks of this very clearly. And in Adam, as our representative, the representative of all mankind, we all fell when Adam fell. We all are guilty. And you might say, well, that's not fair. I don't like this whole representative thing. Hold that thought. Because it's by that very concept of representation that you will find your only hope. So don't reject the idea, I don't want to be represented by another. If you reject that idea, you will not receive salvation. Because you must be represented by another. And it's because of the fall that you must. Romans 5.12 says this, just so you can see from the Word of God what this says. Therefore... Just as through one man sin entered into the world, that would be the first Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We are all guilty. Ephesians 2.1, you know this verse. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And because you are dead, you remember how we mentioned God is holy? He demands perfection, perfect holiness from you. Those who are born dead in their sins cannot be holy. Do you see the problem? (laughs) You must be holy. You can't be holy. That's a massive problem. Not only can you not be holy, but you are born in such a way where you have no desire to be holy. You don't want God. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Mankind is now born dead with an open rejection of seeing Christ as worthy. They are born, as the scriptures say, children of wrath, meaning children who will inherit wrath. That is a problem. If you want to know what else the Bible says about this, those who do not obey the gospel which is what we are going to be putting on the forefront this week, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know what happens to those who reject the gospel? 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8 says this, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. We don't speak about judgment coming because 
It's our idea. We speak about judgment coming because it is true. God's Word says it is true. If you are born dead in your sins, you're incapable of being holy, and you die that way, there is only one place you can be sure you will go. Eternal wrath in hell. And not only that, but the life you live on earth will be filled with temporary pleasures and will end in misery. A life lived apart from God only ends in veiled happiness. It always ends in misery. You know why? That's not just my idea. Because you were created for Christ. If you're not living for Christ, you can't expect to be happy. You might have moments of happiness. But like a square peg that is trying to fit through a triangle opening, it won't work because it's not designed to work. You want to know why some of you are discouraged? You want to know why some of you feel that emptiness? It's because you're not fulfilling what you were created for. You were created for Christ. But now, as children of wrath, now as those who don't see Christ as worthy, you feel the emptiness, and friends, that's a kindness. Aren't you glad that you can feel that emptiness? Because it's that emptiness that will be a constant reminder to you that you're lacking something. If God didn't allow you to see that emptiness, you wouldn't be constantly reminded of your need. You need God, even if you don't want Him. Again, that's not the point. Whether you want Him or not does not stop the fact that you need Him. But is that it? Is it the end of the story that we are born dead, we're lifeless, we're powerless, we have a desperate need? We, apart from Christ, will live an increasingly miserable life. That's not the end. Because despite our sin, despite our sin in Adam and our continual sin today, despite our sin, despite being dead, despite not seeing God as worthy, despite being born as an enemy of God, God sends His Son. God sends His Son And not just to show up. Not just to show up and say, I'm worthy. He could do that. But that wouldn't meet the sacrificial requirements. He sends his son as a lamb to be slain. I want you to look with me at John 1. Turn in your Bibles to John 1. You've read this probably quite a few times, but it is so significant. John 1, verse 1 through 5 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So you can see this Word is speaking of another person other than God the Father, but this Word was God. 
This is Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was what? Say it louder. If you're born dead, the greatest need you have is this. Right? If in him was smiles, if in him was happiness, if in him was anything else other than life, you're still dead. But in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And that word comprehend can mean comprehend or understand, but it can also mean lay hold of, seize, or take possession. The darkness that has possession of you has no power over Christ. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't stand against it. Going down, go to verse 14 in the same passage. And the Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Do you see that? Don't read past it. Because you desperately need that grace. Grace is undeserved favor upon you. For in his fullness, Jesus Christ we have received grace, undeserved favor upon undeserved favor. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. You see, the law or the works that you try to do cannot produce grace because works equal deserved something. Grace is not deserved anything. Grace is undeserved favor. But look at what verse 18 says. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. You want to know God. You want to see God. You want to see your Creator. You want to see the Holy One. You go no other way other than through Jesus Christ. And that means... Very clearly, any other way you try to take to see God will not end in life. Because in Him, in Jesus alone, is life. To go any other way is death. This is the Jesus we're going to be talking about this week. This is the one with whom you have everything to do. This is the one. I don't care what you think of me. I don't care. I hope you never bow the knee to me because that has no eternal ramifications one way or the other. If you worship me, that's just foolish. If you don't worship me, I don't care because it has nothing to do with your eternal state. But if you do not bow the knee to Jesus, 
It has everything to do with your eternal state. Remember our theme verse, worthy are you, Jesus, for you were slain. We're going to be zooming in on that this week, the slain portion of that. That makes no sense. That is foolishness to the world. But I pray that you would see it not as foolishness, but as the power and wisdom of God. You might say, well, why do we need to start a lesson like this? Why do we need to start a lesson with a reminder that we openly reject Christ as worthy from the day we're born? Well, friend, it's because you will never see Christ as worthy if you don't first see yourself as unworthy. You will never It will be impossible for you to see Christ as worthy if you do not first see yourself as completely unworthy. You must see your desperate need to be saved in order for salvation to appeal to you. Otherwise, His blood seems like meaningless bloodshed. This is why the world looks on the sacrifice of Christ and says, that's grotesque. That is disgusting, disturbing. Your king dies? It's because they don't see their need for the blood. You don't take medicine if you don't know you're sick. You just don't. I remember vividly the day when my wife and I were told 20 weeks into the pregnancy with Grayson that he would be born with a heart condition that would require immediate open heart surgery at four days old and then two more to come and then we're not certain how long he will live after that. I remember that day. It hurt. It was miserable in some ways. But I also look back at it and I say, that is a kindness If I didn't know, if the doctors didn't know, if my wife and I just assumed everything would be okay and Grayson was born, he would have died within the first week because he didn't know his need for a surgery. In the same way, that is what the Word of God is meant to show you first. You need a heart surgery. You need it. It's not optional. You have to have it. If you don't, you will die. So, as we come to the final moments here, I want to ask you a question. I really want you to be honest with yourself. And I think some of the Q&A, some of the the questions and answers, and, and, and try to be honest with yourself this week. It doesn't benefit you to lie. It doesn't benefit you to lie to your leaders because what does it matter what we think of you? It doesn't benefit you to be dishonest. It doesn't benefit you to pretend. Sure, you can walk out of camp feeling like everybody knows you're saved, but who cares if you're not? I want to ask you this question. Where would you go if you died today? And there are a couple things that may come to mind Where would you go? But not just that. How do you know? Where would you go? 
how would you know that you would go there? Some of you may know for certain in your heart you do not know the Lord and you answer that in your mind and heart and say, if I died today, I would go to hell because I don't know the Lord. You know what I would say to you that knows that? Praise God you know it. Praise God you know it. Now is your chance to not pretend any longer. Praise God that you know that because now you know you need to run. Don't praise God that you know it and just stay there. Praise God that you know that. It is a kindness of God to tell you you're dead because he doesn't want you to stay and die. He wants you to live through Christ. Don't stay there. You might say, well, I really don't see the need. I don't really care about this Christ that you're talking about. And again, that should not surprise us. We're born dead. But I would encourage you, stick with me this week. Stick with your leaders. Hear what the Word of God has to say. I want to challenge you to keep listening because in the Word of God is your only hope. But there are some of you who may answer, I know for certain, I know for certain that I would be in heaven. And you may think initially, that's good that you know that. That's where the second part comes in. How do you know it? Because if you say, I know I will be in heaven because I've been in church for a long time. I know truth. I know Jesus is, is really important. I'm mostly good. You should see my track record. My family has always been in church. I know about God. We do devotions. I read my Bible. I pray. I do all of these things. If that is the basis of your assurance, that doesn't necessarily mean you're not saved. But that should not be the basis of your assurance. If it's for any other reason other than Jesus Christ's blood covers me. And when I stand before God, He will not look at me in my sin, but will look at me in Christ's righteousness. If that is not your answer for your assurance, you may need to reconsider that so certain answer of I'll be in heaven. Because you will not be in heaven and you will not be with Jesus through any other way other than through Jesus. But for those of you who can say amen to what I just said, you know you will be in heaven because of no one else other than Jesus Christ. Praise God. But then, as I mentioned and alluded to earlier, if you say in your heart, I don't know. I don't know where I would go. Maybe you're basing your I don't know on something like this. When I was younger, I think I was saved. I think I had some sort of experience but my life currently lives opposed to God. So I don't know. I don't want any of you to leave this week without knowing one way or the other. And I want, you, I want to be very transparent with you. This is going to sound a bit morbid. But I've been praying specifically, and I know your leaders have been praying specifically, that those of you who are saved would know with full assurance it is only through Jesus Christ 
that you are saved and that you would grow and that you would live for him for the rest of your days. But you know what else I've been praying? That those of you who come to find out that you don't know God, I have been praying for you to know it clearly and that your soul would not be at rest ever. I have been praying that you would be so miserable. It sounds bad. But I've been praying that you would be so miserable that it would fester inside of you knowing that you are not right with God, that you would run to him. Please don't take that as unloving because I want you to know God. And I don't want you for a moment to think it's okay that I can go another day without knowing him. So wrestle with this question, where will you go and how do you know? You're going to find out this week, hopefully, very clearly. And the beautiful thing about the message of the cross, which we're going to talk about even more tonight, the message of Jesus Christ is that those who are not right with him can be made right with him through some sort of emotional experience? No! Through faith in Christ. Believe, trust, lay down every work that you've tried to do before. Lay down everything that you've held so dear, whether that be your family heritage or the works that you've done. Throw it away. Look to Christ. You will be saved. Do you see yourself as a sinner in need of saving? If you do, you're on the right path. Do you see how you offended a holy God and that you deserve wrath forever? You're on the right path. Run to Christ. Flee this wrath to come. John 20, verse 31 says this. This is at near the end of the Gospel of John. He's come to the conclusion of his book. He's got one more chapter to go through in chapter 21 that he's writing. But John 20, verse 30 and 31, he has a very clear intention for why he writes. And this intention is also my intention and your leader's intention for this week. You might say, why do we need to hear about Christ? Why? I've heard about him before. Why do I need to keep hearing about this Christ? John 20, verse 30 through 31 says this, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book. But these, these things, everything that John has written about, these have been written for a reason so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and look how it ends, and that believing you may have what? Life in his name. Our message is simple. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it's very clear. And we have no need to pretend to you. We want you to see Jesus, see him clearly, so that you would believe and that you would be raised from death to life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. 
for this introductory lesson to just even consider some of these things. I know it's a hard lesson to consider. Lord, I do pray as I just spoke that those who know you would be more assured than ever that they would go out of this place greater worshipers of you. That they would love you more and that they would walk with you every day for the rest of their days. Lord, I do pray that those in this room who have seen their need, right now the forces of darkness are trying to pluck the seed. We believe, Lord, you can overcome that. So I pray that you would. I pray that you would thwart the plan of the enemy. That those seeds of the gospel would take root, even in its most basic form, as we have not hardly scratched the surface of what Christ has done for us. But I pray that that would be made clear even more so in the days ahead. And let these kids not rest if they don't know you. Please, Lord, let them be honest. Let them be reminded it does not benefit them to be dishonest. And that these leaders, Lord, and their peers should as well want what's best for them. And what's best for them is to know Jesus Christ. So help us, Lord. Be with us the rest of this day, we pray. Amen.